A couple years back, a friend of mine from Boston, his name is Ben, uh, he's the director of the Labrie Institute in Southboro, Massachusetts, a place that I've gone to regularly for uh, spiritual refreshment and study. And he was taking a sabbatical, and he had always wanted to come to Alaska because he's a fly fisherman. And I got wind of this, and I began to think, if only I knew somebody who might be able to, you know, tour him through Alaska to do some fly fishing. So I reached out and I said, Ben, if you can come, I'll give you 10 days and we'll go around the state and we'll look for streams and chase, uh, chase some rainbow trout. And he did. We had a great time. He did this a couple years ago. And one day we hired a jet boat uh, in the region of Talkeetna to take us up the Talkeetna River towards Clear Creek. I know a couple of you know where that is. And it wasn't actually Clear Creek that we fished, but another secretive stream back in there, which I will simply refer to as Wish You Knew It Creek, okay? <laughs> and we had a great time on that particular uh, creek, but it was difficult to get to. There was no clear trail to it. Somebody else had told us about it. They basically dropped us at the bank, and, and it was instructions something like, go about this far, then turn left, then head up this ridge, go about this far until you get to this cliff, and then drop down and cross these marsh. And it was that kind of thing, you know, past the, end of the, past the bend in the road and the little gnome on the way, and, you know, it was this kind of thing. And so we got going, and we were able to kind of work our way through, and we got to this one section where the grass was like six feet tall, this kind of marshy area. And I went first, and I have a shotgun and a scabbard on my back, and we're hiking through, and every now and then, and I, Amy just learned about this this morning, <laughs> every now and then you would step into, oh, a little clearing where bears had been laying, or moose, or whatever, these different beds. And then, you know, so that was kind of creepy, but I put on a brave face for my Boston friends, so don't worry about that. But as I was walking along, the grass was so high and thick, you really couldn't see the ground. So I would walk every 30 yards or so and then just step in a hole and fall completely on my face. And the shotgun on my back would just, you know, bop me in the back of the head. And my friend Ben would pick me up, we'd laugh, and then we'd keep going. And that's the way we got through these, this sort of grassy area. Um, but the point that I want to draw out of this is that even though there was no clear trail and there was no easy going for sure, we were headed the right way. And we did find our way onto the stream. We had a fantastic time chasing some rainbows there and uh, we were using little mice patterns. And the funniest thing, by the way, this is a warning that it's summertime, so fishing stories are coming, you know, so <laughs> sorry, not sorry. But the rainbow trout would jump out of the water and body slam the, the mice, it was hilarious. They were basically trying to like knock it out before they would take it. But we caught a couple, so here's a little one, and you can see the shotgun that was whapping me in the head. And this is my friend Ben, and uh, one of the better fish we caught. And I love that one just because of the color. Look at that red stripe right through the middle, super cool. But this is something that I think kind of a bit of a principle that we all experience in Alaska, and that is just because... There isn't an easy, well-established trail. It doesn't mean that you're necessarily going the wrong way. In fact, bushwhacking is sort of a part of the Alaskan outdoor life, especially when you're going to that secret stream or that hidden moose valley. Uh, I've caught some of my best fish and shot some of my best critters when you have to do some, a bit of bushwhacking. 
And I think we find a similar ministry principle here in Acts 21 with the Apostle Paul. The big, big idea principle is right at the top of your notes in your bulletin here, and that's this. The easy path is not necessarily the sign of God's will, nor is the easy path necessarily the leading of the Holy Spirit. But the faithful servants of God will experience plenty of rough terrain as we follow Jesus, just as he did. So Acts uh, 21, we pick up on the Apostle Paul painfully leaving his dear friends in Ephesus. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and then from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, and there we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nasan, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus, one of the early disciples. Okay. Throughout this passage, and the one that follows here, we see sort of steady references to prophets, like Agabus and these four daughters of Philip, to prophecy, and also to those who are prompted and led by the Holy Spirit. And I think it's worth saying at the outset that this is often uncomfortable territory for conservative Baptists, right? Myself included. And I'm going to preface the entire sermon here with a little bit of a disclaimer, which is this. Personally, I probably have more questions about prophecy in today's world than just about any other theological matter. Uh, this, this topic challenges me, and I don't have it all worked out yet. I've got everything else worked out perfectly, <laughs> just not this. You get my sarcasm. Generally... I approach the subject of prophecy with caution 
with suspicion, and I would say even skepticism. If I had my druthers, I would prefer to say, prophecy doesn't happen anymore. That was something that was for a particular time period, a season long gone, you know, no longer happens. My personal preference would be to say, we have the scriptures and that's all that we need. The problem with that view, which I wish I could claim, is that the scriptures themselves, I don't think, allow me that conclusion. As soon as I say, I'm a Bible guy, then I have to deal with what the Bible says, and it seems to me that it maintains that we have to deal with, live with, and understand prophecy. Let me kind of get into this here. In 1 Corinthians 13, if you want to turn to this, this is famous love passage. It's cited at weddings everywhere. We get the familiar beginning, love never fails. But then it turns a little bit. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. And some will go, yeah, see, prophecies end. Uh, and then it goes on. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. So those who take this passage and look to it and claim, see, prophecy and these other things have completely ceased, that position is, that particular theological camp is known as cessationist. Okay, there's your fancy word for the day, cessationist. But I want you to notice, um, and, and, I, and I'll tell you this, and, and may surprise some of you, although I've said this before, I am not a cessationist because I don't think the scripture allows me that position. And I'll show you why. It's because of my commitment to the scriptures. If you notice in verse 10, the condition that is given for when prophecies will cease, what's the word there? When what comes? Completeness or perfection, depending on your translation. And some who are cessationists will say, in fact, most would say that this completeness or this perfection refers to either the closing of the New Testament canon in, say, AD 367, or the last revelation of Scripture somewhere in AD 90 when we got Revelation. The problem with that position, I think, is verse 12 of this same passage that I'm looking at that seems to link perfection or completion to seeing Christ face to face. As you go down to verse 12, it says, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. In other words, it, it seems to me that completeness refers to, is a reference to when Christ returns, not the completion of the New Testament canon or of scriptural revelation, but a reference to when we see him, when we are with him, when we are like him, when we enjoy his rule and reign. Now, to be honest, if this were the only passage in Scripture and I developed my position purely from this, um, I'd still be a little bit uneasy or a little bit uncertain about that position. But it comes up again as the Apostle Paul is talking to the Thessalonians in chapter 5 of that epistle. So if you would turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, and this is an incredibly important and helpful passage on the subject. There are others, and I'm not going to hit them all. 
1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19, the Apostle Paul says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. In other words, it seems that Paul expects the Thessalonians and us today to live in such a way that we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit, hearing from him, and perhaps even hearing from him through prophecy. And at the same time, to recognize that prophecies must be tested because not every self-proclaimed prophet is actually speaking for God or rightly speaking. Can I get an amen to that? There's this twofold caution here in this passage in 1 Thessalonians 5. Don't quench the spirit. And I would say, conservative Baptists, this is something we need to pay attention to and guard. But also, don't allow falsehood in the name of prophecy because you have failed to test. And I would say all of us pay attention to that. Now, some of you are sitting here going, I thought we were going through Acts. <laughs> we are. So let's, let's kind of tilt back there, Acts 21. Um, I think what we see in Acts 21, it sort of becomes a case in point passage of just what Paul is cautioning about. Or, so verse 3, after sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So we have to wrestle with this here a little bit because um, through the Spirit, they urge him not to go. But what does Paul do? He goes. So now we have to sort of ask this question. Does this mean that Paul is being disobedient to the Spirit's leading? Is he a rogue apostle? Is he hard of hearing? You know, his hearing aids on the fritz? The answer to all of this is no, Paul is not rogue and he's not hard of hearing. But in fact, in the last chapter, in Acts chapter 20, which Pastor Adam preached last week, we saw Paul specifically directed by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. So in Acts 20, starting at verse 20, it says this, You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. So now we have this other tension to deal with, don't we? Is the Bible contradicting itself? Or is the Holy Spirit contradicting himself or sending mixed messages to different people? Paul is compelled by the Spirit in chapter 20 to go up into Jerusalem. But the people of Tyre, or I'll call them the Tyranians, the Tyranians urge him in the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. Which is it? Who's right? How do we reconcile this? And most likely what has happened here is that these Christians in Tyre have rightly heard from the Spirit of God about the dangers ahead of Paul, just as he himself has heard. 
However, they've wrongly concluded that therefore he should not go. And so my sense here is that they have heard the right word, but have given the wrong application. They have mixed into the clear prophetic word of the Holy Spirit their own personal preference. Now, this this interpretation does more than just kind of harmonize the tension here in the text, but I think it reminds us of an important principle for those who are looking to be faithful servants of the Lord, and that's their first point. The faithful servant of God is prepared for difficulty because discipleship has its costs. So most likely this is just love for their friend, their respected leader, that causes the Tyrrhenians to say, no, Paul, don't go, please don't go. You're heading right into trouble. In other words, the right word, but the wrong application. But in fact, it is trouble and suffering which were exactly what Paul had been promised by God. And friends, I think this reminds us that we too need to have a place in our theological makeup for suffering. Too often is evangelicalism purely seeking triumphalism, here and now. The easy life, here and now. Prosperity, here and now. Victory, here and now. But in fact, we see this prediction of suffering for Paul all the way back to his first encounter with the, Lord, with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. All the way back there in chapter 9, there was a man named Ananias who lived in Damascus who presumably Paul was going to persecute. But the Lord appears to Ananias and tells him about Paul. He says, the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So the servant of God may well be a suffering servant. Something that has been a long-standing obstacle for the people of God. But it was true of Paul And it was true of Jesus before him, but always a stumbling block for the people of God. But we know that the way of discipleship, as Jesus describes it, is the way of the cross. He does not say, pick up your scepter and follow me. Grab up your throne and follow me. Grab up your crown and follow me. He says, take up your cross and follow me. He says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Or in 1 Timothy, we find the words, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's a particular phrase that causes me um, angst. There are a number of things that cause me angst to be Eric's not easy. Um, (laughs) Just say that. There's a phrase that bothers me. It's this one. It's a total God thing. A total God thing. If you say this to me, I'll smile. I'll try not to be critical. But it bothers me. That was a total God thing. Because usually what happens is somebody says that right after a green light, job promotion, financial windfall, you know, something pleasant and favorable comes in their life and they go, it's a total God thing. As if God only did things that were favorable to our opinion. Right? One of the pastors that I listened to regularly as a child was Chuck Swindoll. 
He has said, if you only expect good things from God, you only have half a God. It's true that our God is a God of redemption and rescue, and he is giving us our lives back through discipleship to Jesus as we are restored into the humanity he intended for us. But as we are being renewed, and as we are becoming like Christ, we will not fit neatly into this world. So be ready for the costs. Verse 8, leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea. We stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And after we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt and tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says in this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul, do not go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Our second point is this, the servants of God listens to the Holy Spirit because he still speaks. I stated at the beginning of our passage that the text is full of references to prophecy and to prophets. And here we find these, these four daughters of Philip and we find this fellow named Agabus who comes in with this sort of dramatic illustration of, of a prophetic word. And I, ha- I, first of all, want to ask myself, why are we told about these four daughters of Philip here? Um, is it just so we think well of Philip? You know, like, dude, you've got four daughters. They're all still at home hanging out with you. And they're prophesying. Well done, man. Well done. I tip my fly rod to you, okay? Is this just to think well of Philip? Also, it's interesting. These daughters, they don't actually do anything in the passage. There is no prophetic word from them. And if this were a movie, they're just kind of extras, right? And so I ask myself, why does he even tell us about these? And I could be wrong about this. I'm speculating here, but I, so I hold this open-handed. But I think one of the reasons that they are mentioned is almost to provide a little bit of legitimacy for prophecy and perhaps even this fellow Agabus who comes in to give a prophetic word. Agabus has appeared before in the book of Acts one time, back in chapter 11, where he correctly predicted a famine uh, that was to occur. But he still seems kind of an obscure re- uh, individual. And it seems to me that maybe these daughters who are in the home of Philip, whom we know and trust, almost give a little bit of legitimacy to prophecy. And I, again, I could be wrong about that, but that's my, my sense. But friends, I think one of the great risks of being conservative, Baptist, evangelical Christians is that we would have no or little expectation of God the Holy Spirit. That we would act as though he were once powerful, once active, once speaking, once mighty, but that now in his dotage, he merely sits back under an Afghan doing Sudoku, right? Thinking about the good old days when he were relevant. I think we often think of the Holy Spirit of God as the JV member of the Trinity, And I want to counter that by reminding us, as this passage does, that the Holy Spirit of God is evergreen. That he too, like the Father and the Son, is eternal and tireless and active now. 
The Spirit of God is alive and well, and he still speaks. And I think the question for us is, do we listen? Do we know how to listen? Do we know how to distinguish his voice? Jesus himself says in John 16, he says, Very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Uh, About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. He still speaks. Thirdly here, the servant of God tests prophecies by Scripture because only God is infallible. So I think there's two really big things put on display in our passage. First of all, the Holy Spirit of God is still speaking. He's still speaking to his people. And secondly, God's people are still faulty, right? There are plenty of false prophets today who gladly claim the name of God behind their message to bolster their message or their own personal stature. And personally, I think this is a way that people use the Lord's name in vain today. It's not just uttering in a moment of frustration, OMG, But I think oftentimes using the Lord's name in vain is borrowing his name to give credibility to what I might be saying in my own person. And I think that is an example of using the Lord's name in vain. Therefore, the people of God have to be skilled at testing prophecies just as the Thessalonians were cautioned. So to the Bethelonians, (laughs) I say... I want to draw a little bit of an understanding of prophecy because it's easy to get some equivocation here. But first of all, number one, in the Old Testament, we have the office of a prophet. And there were those who penned Scripture, right? Isaiah, Jeremiah, they would tell the people what was to come. It had the authority of Scripture. But in the Old Testament, one who claimed the mantle of a prophet and was wrong, what was, what was at risk for them? Take them out and stone them. False prophet was to be killed. So that's what we see in the Old Testament of those claiming the office of a prophet. I think in the New Testament, it's apostles who were given the authority to pen scripture uh, and not prophets, but prophecy in the New Testament tends to be one who has a gift of prophecy, who hears something from God, but open-handedly lays it out to be tested. And there is a, so there is a distinction there. And I think this, it's this latter one that's being practiced here in the New Testament church. I do think that with the completion of the New Testament, um, God has given us all the revelation that we need. And so I, I think it's, we're not going to get new revelation, certainly not going to get new revelation on par with Scripture. Um, but in fact, I think what the Holy Spirit of God does is he helps us to bring to bear the scripture, the revelation that we have upon our lives and in the moments ahead of us. And I think 
prophecy is best used or legitimately used in those ways. So it's not new revelation, but previous revelation presently applied. And it may include with it a kind of guidance as Jesus taught us. And so it could be something like taking this job, leaving this place, uh, repenting of this action, courageously going a different direction, accepting a new assignment, uh, or, or going into this difficulty ahead, grounded in Scripture. But as, as we test a prophecy, what we will see is that it never, ever contradicts Scripture. The Scripture is the authoritative and objective guide of what is truth. Um, John chapter 14 uh, and through 16, really key passages to look at how God intended the Holy Spirit to speak to his people. And I want to just show you here kind of the positive case and the negative case, how the Spirit speaks, what he does do, and what he doesn't do. So in John 14, verse 25, we get a bit of the positive case. Jesus says, All of this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So there we see a bit of a a positive case, what the Spirit is to do, drawing attention to revelation already given. We also get sort of a negative case in, in chapter 16 here, where he says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from him, from from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. So there's sort of the negative case. The Spirit does not draw attention to himself or even necessarily to phenomenon. He draws attention to Christ, which is a good test of whether we're seeing something legitimate or not. So these two passages show us what the Spirit does and what the Spirit does not do. But as we look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture we also see that the Spirit of God may well lead his people, even his faithful servants, into times of difficulty. He may do that. We find God having this strange conversation in the book of Job. Here we have God visiting with Job, which is weird. I didn't know they hung out. You know, that's a strange conversation that's happening here, but it's happening. And God says to Job, have you considered my servant Job? Job says, well, God, Job doesn't trust you for nothing. And God basically says, have at him. Don't lay a hand on the man himself, but fine. Or we think of Jesus heading into the wilderness for a time of temptation. Do you know who led him there? The text says the Spirit led him into the wilderness. Did the Spirit tempt him? No. No but he led him to that place in that time where it would occur. The resurrected Jesus appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus to show him how much he would suffer. The Spirit warned Paul regularly in every town about the hardships that would happen, not so that he would skip the town, but just telling him that it was there for him. The Spirit led Paul to go to Jerusalem with full knowledge of the difficulties ahead. And in fact, I think this part part of Paul's story is almost an echo 
of kind of how his life reverberates with the last days of Jesus. Jesus who also set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus who knew the suffering that was ahead of him prayed, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine. And that same phrase occurs here even in our passage, although it's not Paul who says it, but the people when they realize they can't convince him differently, thy will be done. So overall, it seems to me that Dr. Luke, the author, and Paul's missionary companion, by the way, he's with him in all of this. You notice the language says we. He's with him. It seems to me that he would have or admire Paul for his courage and his perseverance to see that Paul is one who listens to the Holy Spirit and one who tests prophecies presented to him and follows the Lord, even if it means heading straight into long predicted suffering. Paul's course is not to follow the path of least resistance, believing that to be the will of God. But he was one who learned to listen to the Holy Spirit, test prophecy, and follow faithfully, come what may. So the next thing we want to see here is this. Last thing. The faithful servant of God strives for Christian unity. We cannot love God without loving others. Verse 17, long passage here. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do uh, do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay for their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. I I have to laugh here a little bit. I've been shaving my head for like 20 years. I haven't paid for a haircut in a long time. I didn't know I had to pay for it. Take these men, join in their purification routes, pay for their expenses so they can have their heads shaved, and everyone will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. Verse 27, when the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops 
that the whole city of, of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing, some shouted another. And since the commander could not get at all the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. Well, check it out. Fake news, misinformation were rampant in the first century world as well. They didn't have a digital platform to propagate it, but they did perfectly fine in sending out all of these wrong messages about Paul and what he had actually said. Pastor Adam made a statement last week which caused me to, re- to remember my, my predecessor, Paul Holmes, made, made a very similar statement decades ago, which is this, that close to the truth is much more dangerous than patently false because it's the near truth that so easily misleads. Part of what the people are saying here is true, but the criticism levied at Paul was actually based on falsehood. He never taught Jews to give up their practice of circumcision or law observance. But rumors and rancor, rancor and marketplace clatter had distorted the facts. Uh, I've been a pastor for 20 years. I know how frustrating it can be to be misunderstood and criticized for the misunderstanding. So James, Pastor James here, puts together a little PR program for the Apostle Paul, if you will. And it's interesting to me, Paul, one of the reasons he's coming to Jerusalem is to carry this financial gift for those who are impoverished and struggling. And you think that would sort of earn him a little bit of goodwill. It does not. They're still after him. And so James has him participate in this practice here and even to underwrite the cost for four others, basically entering into a Nazarite vow, something Paul has already committed to. And there's a lot going on here, and I'm not going to unpack all of it, but just to say this, I think the gist of what Paul is doing against the criticism that's coming at him is the same kind of thing that he told us about in 1 Corinthians 9.20, right? When he says, to the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel and that I might share in its blessings. I think that's what Paul is doing here. And so Paul lived happily ever after, right? No. Dragged from the temple, they began beating him nearly to death. They arrested him, which sounds like the good part, bound him by two chains, as was prophesied, and took him to the barracks. And Paul was in the center of God's will. Like Joseph in the dungeon, like Daniel in the lion's den, like Jesus who set his face to go to Jerusalem to hang on a cross and die and raise from the dead. Paul is suffering, and he's in the center of God's will. The evangelical church needs to have a place for this in our theology. Not just triumphalism, not just prosperity, not just success here and now, but knowing that we may have difficult paths ahead of us, and even in those tough times, we can be right in the center of God's will. Let's pray. 
Lord, thank you for Paul's courage and tenacity. Thank you for his obedience to you. Thank you for his ability to hear the prophetic word from the Spirit and also to know where it had been falsely applied by others. Thank you for the correction that he gives to us, whether we are inclined to treat prophecies with contempt or whether we're inclined to accept every one of them with no test. Lord, we want to be those who are led by, indwelt by, filled by the Holy Spirit, participating in your will, come what may. Give us courage for the days ahead, whether they are good things or hard things. We know they're all God things. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.